Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, what if this parable that we just heard What if the parable that we just heard isn't at all saying what we all automatically assume that it's saying? What if Jesus is not saying or he's not suggesting God really doesn't care about your problems, but he only grants you what you ask only after you have bothered him for a long time in prayer, beating on the door of his heart. Then he'll give in and then he'll listen. Look, I know, I know it certainly seems as though that's what Jesus is suggesting, that God only does things for us after like, we pray really, 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 really hard, that like, maintaining a sort of toddler level, those are your parents, right? Toddler level of uh, sort of persistence, God, please, 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 please. And then you finally just give in, right? Yes, you can have ice cream, fine, I don't care, fine, have it, just be quiet, you can have the iPad, just give me a few seconds of peace and quiet, right? All right, I know it seems like he's saying that, but that's only if we look at this parable in isolation. But when you read this parable in light of the entire story, like something else emerges. This is what like the Lord did in my heart this week. He just flipped everything on its head because, friends, the entire Bible is trying to like reveal the Father's heart and his loving plan for you and me, which is a plan of like flourishing and glory and beauty and goodness. The Father only wants your highest good. The Father only wants your blessing. And what is the Father like? He's never too busy for you. He's never too busy working on other things that you have to like pry him away to get his attention to finally pay attention to you. He's never like, listen, I'm working on like South Sudan right now. Do you mind if you just like deal with your own stuff? That's not his heart. That's not him. You never have to pull him away from something. The Father loves you. Like you have his rapt attention. You're never a burden to him. You're never a nuisance to him. He never says, kid, just give me a break. Like figure it out on your own. That's just never his heart. That's never his heart. So friends, like look, when we read this parable in light of the entire story, the entire narrative, what becomes clear like what suddenly emerges from, the, from, the, from Jesus' words here in this parable, that the one who's actually pounding on the door, like the one who's pounding on the door incessantly is Jesus, is Jesus. And the judge who just won't pay her any attention, that isn't God, that's you and me. This is what I mean. In this parable, we think the judge is the Lord and we're the widow. And our job is to keep pounding on the door of his heart until he finally gives in. It's the other way around. He's the widow and we're the judge in this story. And friends, as soon as we see that, like, that unlocks everything. Like, the, the key to this whole parable, like, the key here is what Jesus says at the very end. And he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's not wondering, am I going to find people who believe in me? 
Like, am I going to find people who can profess the Nicene Creed? Am I going to find people who know the Ten Commandments and the Eight Beatitudes? Am I going to find people who know the precepts of the church who can rattle off church teaching? Am I going to find people who have all the head knowledge? That's not what he's asking. He's wondering, will I find anybody who is open to the gift of love that I desire to pour into them? Am I going to find anybody who's open? That's what he's asking. Like, this is the great dramatic arc of the entire story of salvation. It's everything that is the Bible. It's this slow, progressive school of trust whereby, like, God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, is trying to slowly coax out of the heart of his bride, Israel, a posture of openness and trust. That's the entire story. That's the entire story of the Old Testament. He's trying to woo his bride, woo humanity, gently back into this posture of trust. Friends, we have to see, to see this, we have to go back to the garden all the way to the beginning. All the way to the beginning where we see humanity. We were originally constituted in the garden in this place of total gift. Right? The Father puts us in Eden, which, by the way, it means garden of delight. Like everything you need is there. Everything the Father wants us to have and experience is there. We are the beneficiaries of his indulgent love. And we were meant to be in this posture of receptivity, open to the utter gratuity of God's goodness. That's who we were meant to be. And we look at where we are now, it's like, oh my gosh, how far we've fallen from grace, right? We were in this posture of openness, and it was the enemy, right? The enemy who entered into this story to disrupt the goodness, right? The enemy who hates our human nature, who hates us, and in order to attack God attacks the creature he loves the most, which is us. And out of a seductive lie, he convinces our first parents that perhaps God isn't who you think he is. Perhaps he's holding out on you. And out of this arises fear and mistrust, and so they grasp at the fruit. We know the story, right? They grasp at the fruit. What ends up happening is that that openness is turned into a closedness. That open posture is shut down. We're cut off from our source. That's original sin. This is from the Catechism, right? Catechism, paragraph 397, so towards the very beginning of the Catechism, says this. Man, human person, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom, disobey God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of, and all subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and... A lack of trust in his goodness. He's not good, the enemy says. He's not good. You can't trust him. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't want my good. And so what we do is we grasp at things that we think will make us fulfilled. Like, I must take care of my own heart's deepest needs and desires. This is how the enemy enslaved our human race. This is how we allowed ourselves to be enslaved. We came to agree that it's better for us to be separated from God because we mistrust his gift. And friends, every single one of us, priests and deacons included, every single one of us here today, do we not all perhaps harbor, maybe not consciously, but at least unconsciously, this little suspicion that isn't it good to have a little bit of sin in my life? Doesn't that spice things up a little bit? If I were to go all in on this holiness thing, wouldn't my life be diminished? Wouldn't I become less? 
Wouldn't my life be a little bit more boring? That's the seductive lie of the enemy. What happened from the very beginning is all of humanity developed a sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome, right? Stockholm syndrome, right? That we fell in love with our captor. We came to identify with our captor, which means that we came to see our liberator as a threat. Like there we are in captivity to the enemy. This seems to be the better place. And when the Lord comes in to rescue, it seems, no, 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 no. You're a threat to me. But this is what the Lord does. In his great love and mercy, he comes to the aid of us insane rebels. Because that's what we are. We're insane rebels. We're sons and daughters who've lost our minds. We've run from the father's house and we're sitting in the mud like the prodigal son. Lost. But the Father, in his mercy, comes to the aid of all of us, to all of humanity. This is the story of the Old Testament, that the Father is initiating covenants. We all, that, we all know that word, covenant. He's initiating covenants with humanity to bind us back together. At first, he does it with Noah and his family. And then Noah can't keep it. So then he offers a covenant to Abram and his tribe, and they can't keep it. Then to Moses and the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, they can't keep it. Then to David and the kingdom... He can't keep it. All along, what the Father is doing, what the Lord is doing, is he's trying to reestablish relationship. He's trying to get the bride, humanity, Israel, to open, to trust again, to say yes, to believe, to believe that our flourishing, like our best life is found in direct relationship, in direct proportion to closeness to God. The closer God gets, the more you flourish. The enemy has got us to think that our story is like one of those Greco-Roman myths. Right? In the Greco-Roman myths, those stories, when the gods draw close to humanity, what happens to humanity? Like they're they're like obliterated, they're compromised, they blow up, they're killed. He's trying to tutor our hearts to say, no, 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 please. Understand that the closer you let me get, the more alive you become. The closer you let me get, the more authentically yourself you become. The more interesting your life becomes, the more adventurous your life becomes, the more incredible your life becomes. And all throughout salvation history, all through that long corridor of Israel's history, all the covenants, what God is doing, like the widow is knocking on the heart of a reluctant judge. Our hearts, he's knocking over and over and over again. Let me in, is what he says. Let me in. At the very center of the Bible, if any of you brought your Bibles to Mass today, at the very center of the Bible is a book that we tend to not focus on as Catholics. It's called the Song of Songs. The ancient Jewish rabbis, they said that all of Scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs... They said, is the holy of holies. Remember, the holy of holies was the innermost court in the center of the temple, right? Where only the high priest got to go into the holy of holies one day a week. Because it was the place where the mercy seat of the temple or the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the place of greatest density of holiness on earth. And the rabbi said that the song of songs of all the scriptures is like the holy of holies. What is this book about, you might ask? How come I haven't heard about this book? Well, this book is filled with love poetry. Love poetry. Benedict XVI, right? Joseph Ratzinger, the German Shepherd, right? Benedict XVI. He referred to this book. 
He said it's the, it, the Song of Songs, he says, expresses the essence of biblical faith. It's a fascinating claim, right? Not the Gospels, not Isaiah, not the Prophets, not the Revelation, not Genesis, not any of those other books. According to Pope Benedict XVI, who I'm sure one day will be a doctor of the church, he said that this book, this book of drippingly beautiful love poetry that expresses the longing of bridegroom and bride for each other, this book, he says, expresses the essence of biblical faith, which should cause us to ask, maybe I don't know what the essence of biblical faith is. If that's the truth, what, are he, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing? Why is it, you might ask, that more saints wrote more commentaries on the Song of Songs than any other book in the Bible combined. What are they seeing that most of us modern Catholics, modern Christians aren't seeing? This book is an allegory of the spiritual life. It's describing who God is and who we are. And at the culmination, the center of this book, the dramatic high point of the Song of Songs, it's this moment when the bridegroom comes to the bride at night his head is dripping with the dew of the night, and he's knocking on the door. And he says, open to me, my sister, my bride, open to me, my dove, my lovely one. My head is drenched with dew with the dampness of the night. Open to me. Pope Benedict also, he said this, that remember that scene where Jesus heals the deaf man, the mute man, where he sticks his fingers in the guy's ear, he spits, touches his tongue, all that stuff? So not COVID-friendly, right? All of that, right? That whole scene. It says that he groans, and the, the scripture retains the original Hebrew, where it says, and he says, Ephatha. They translate it for us. That is, be opened. Pope Benedict says, you can summarize Jesus' the bridegroom Messiah's entire mission in that word. Be open, open to me. That's the widow in the parable, open to me, coming, persistently longing, right? Open to me. This is the longing in God's heart throughout all of Scripture. And it comes to a dramatic crescendo when God sends an angel out of the white throne room of light, the most beautiful angel, to bend the knee before the princess of the universe. He says, will you open to me? And she says, be it done unto me according to thy word. Fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum, be it done unto me according to thy word. She opens herself. Here's St. John Paul II. He says this. Mary entered the history of salvation, the salvation of the world, through the obedience of faith. And faith, in its deepest essence, is the openness of the human heart to the gift, to God's self-communication in the Holy Spirit. Listen to that again. Faith, in its deepest essence, what it is, is the openness of the human heart to the gift. That's what faith is. It's the openness. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find openness? Will he find hearts that are vulnerable and accessible? Friends, this is the drama. This is the only drama of the spiritual life. This is all there is. Will we let him in? Will we give him access? He who draws close, will we assume a posture of openness or a posture of closeness? Right, the persistent widow. She's in this mass because it's Jesus. The bridegroom, like in the Song of Songs, is at the gate. Right, what do we say right before we receive the Eucharist? Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter, the, enter under my roof. 
the roof of my mouth, the roof of my body, the roof of my soul. If, if this is my roof, what's the door? Your lips. The king is right there saying, open to me. And what does he want? He wants you to experience his love for you. He wants you to know that you don't have to earn it. He wants you to know his healing and transformation. He wants you to know that like, there's another way to be. He wants you to know that you have a story and it matters and it hasn't been told from the proper perspective. He wants, you to, re- he wants to retell you your story, but it's all contingent on whether or not we'll open to him. I want to end with this. I talked about how the Song of Songs is love poetry. Well, a friend of mine earlier this week, unbeknownst, you know, I didn't know what the gospel was when uh, my buddy sent me this text. We sent each other, you know, beautiful reflections, beautiful images, quotes, poems, things like that. He sent me this poem. It's a sonnet by John Donne. It's called Batter My Heart. This poem came back as I was praying throughout this week. That's what, like, what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. This is what the poem says. Batter my heart. This is our prayer, by the way. This is the prayer of the Mass. This is what we're asking of Jesus. Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another, do labor to admit you, But oh, to no end, reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend but is captive and proves weak or untrue, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Never shall be free nor chaste, except you ravish me. He's battering on our hearts. Will we let him in?